Welcome to this episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. I'm Michaela Pauchner, Strip-Till Farmer's technology editor. Today's episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast series is brought to you by the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. Dawn is bringing today's innovative farmers a new strip-till product from the regenerative ag-focused underground agriculture brand. The Pluribus Light is priced like a strip freshener, but it offers the features and performance to be used in the fall or spring as a primary strip tiller or strip freshener. It's the perfect complement to a cover crop system that just needs a little blacker strip. Check out the Pluribus Light at dawnequipment.com. Using a sustainable agriculture research and education grant, Oneida, Illinois neighbors Andrew Bowman and Charles Martin partnered on a research trial to strip till sweet corn into a perennial living mulch of Cura Clover. After a very wet spring, weed pressure, and an unexpected impact on corn development, the two deem the experiment a failure, but they have a bounty of ideas to make it work for cash crops in the future. In today's episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast, Andrew and Charles explain the experiment, the benefits of strip-tilling into a living mulch, how to make a clover polyculture work for cash crops, and much more. My name is Charles Martin. I live in West Central Illinois. I was raised on a diversified crop and livestock operation with my family. And I went on to get a biology degree and then a master's degree in international agricultural development. And um, I was working for New Mexico State University for almost 20 years in sustainable agriculture, doing uh, assisting in research uh, such as uh, interseeded uh, crops, uh, cover crop uh, research suitable for the Southwest, both dry land and irrigated crop production. And then uh, later on, I specialized in alternative crops. One of the crops that we looked at was cura clover, and um, after I retired from New Mexico State University in 2011, I continued my interest in research on cura clover. I was going on the internet and I happened to run across a research coming from the University of Wisconsin by Dr. Ken Albrecht, who has since retired, but he had a very interesting project that included interseeding corn into an established stand of cura clover for both weed control and for multi-species complementarity. And it fascinated me. The beauty of his uh, focusing on cura clover was twofold. First of all, it was uh, perennial, and so it could uh, last eight to 10 years or even longer. And the second part about it was naturally resistant to glyphosate. So if you plant a glyphosate-resistant corn into the cura clover and then spray the cura clover, you could set back the cura clover. You wouldn't kill it but it would stud it enough so that the corn could get established and then it would grow back later on in the summer. 
And so I applied for a SARE grant using Cura Clover as a perennial living mulch, but instead of spraying it, I wanted to see if it was applicable for organic systems because uh, that seems to be the trend towards integrated cropping systems like this. I received a grant in 2019 uh, to look at a perennial living mulch system for sweet corn. This is also the same year that I partnered up with uh, Andrew Bowman, who is a neighbor of mine, who had very similar interests. Uh, he's not an organic farmer, but he was interested in growing food corn organically. So he had a partner who had a strip tiller. And so we all worked together to make this project uh, a reality kind of give a 30,000 foot overview from my perspective, uh, which is unique from Charles, although quite a bit of overlap as a friend and fellow experimenter. I'm a lot younger than Charles. Charles actually went to high school with my dad. So that's really neat, neat connection. Our farms aren't that far apart. I farm, I also sell crop insurance and I have a popcorn business. And I bring that up because our popcorn is a way for us to diversify the family farm and the earnings potential. And then the crop insurance, obviously, you know, my family started selling insurance in the 60s, 1960s, and I continue that to this day as the third generation to do that. I bring that up because, you know, part of the benefits of this are that we, that from my perspective are important are the risk management. You know, you add resiliency to your soils. That's like the crop insurance. And then the popcorn side of things, that's, uh, that's diversifying my revenue streams. Uh, I like to use the phrase agronomic hedge. You add some diversification to your biology in the soil, and that, uh, that's going to be win-win over time. Uh, but you have to marry up those ideals with uh, something that is scalable, something that is feasible. Every, you know, the, the fun and the frustration of farming is that there's no cookie-cutter way to do it, right? So how, how do we reconcile all of that? So that's really where I arrived at it. Now, on our farm, the which is conventional, we tried organic for a few years and that just didn't pan out. And some of that was I didn't have enough time, but I think I learned a lot of interesting ideas. And I think that was one thing that drew me to what Charles was trying to do here, because like, you know, this, this can be really exciting where maybe, you know, we could eliminate some of our use of pesticides uh, by having a uh, a perennial living mulch, you know, and add some biology at the same time. And talking about the Cura clover specifically as a cover crop, is what makes it unique? There are several advantages to Cura clover, several positive points to Cura clover. It is a legume. It's rhizomatist. So uh, in highly erodible soils, which is what most of my uh, land is, it's, uh, it's, it can help so hold down the soil because it will spread and it will fill in. And over time, you can get a solid stand. It's very hardy. It's drought tolerant. Uh, because it is rhizomatist, it can die back. And then when the rains come back or when moisture returns, you can get the regrowth of it. It uh, 
it will is very long lived. It can last under normal production uh, anywhere from eight to ten years, and uh, in research, it has lasted fourteen or fifteen years. Another benefit to curd clover is it can be grazed uh, either before or after. It is bloating, so that is one of the disadvantages. But if you plant the curd clover in conjunction with, uh, say, a grass, you can reduce the bloating effect of it. Uh, so that was another particular interest of mine of integrating it in with uh, livestock systems. Uh, the downfall, there are several disadvantages to it. First of all, because it's not well known, uh, there's not a whole lot known about establishment. It is slow to establish. The seed is expensive. Seed is probably about twice as expensive as other clovers. And that's probably because uh, if it's not a popular crop, then you're not going to get many seed breeders interested in growing it for commercial sale. So that's one of the drawbacks to it. And so the combination of the bloating and of the expensive seed, I think we're probably going to be some of the biggest considerations by farmers wanting to adopt this. How do you decide what you're going to research and then where you're planting it and how much you're planting and kind of the logistics of your experiment? The financial constraints is a big factor there. The SARE grant that I applied for is a farmer researcher grant uh, based out of the North Central SARE office in Minnesota. And it was a $9,000 grant. So I basically had to shoehorn this all into a one-year project. Uh, it would have been really, really beneficial to have at least a two-year program so that I could get the curra clover established and then plant into it. Uh, as it turned out, uh, I had to, the first year was a, uh, 2019, and that was, you, as you recall, was a very wet year for uh, the Midwest with the late spring rains and uh, delayed planting. And so the curra clover never got really a good stand establishment. Like most legumes, it doesn't like to have its feet wet. Uh, and so the second year, uh, I had to alter the parameters so that I planted a mixture of white clover, cura clover, and um, simultaneous planting with the corn. And as it turned out, that came out much, much better. Uh, and then the because the corn was strip-tilled, it got an earlier start with simultaneous planting. Um, so... I chose sweet corn as my corn because my neighbor uh, has uh, sweet corn and he agreed to plant it for me using his equipment if I would strip till it. So fortunately, 
Andrew had a working arrangement with the Youngquist Ag, who provided the strip tiller. It worked out really well because it created a really nice seed bed with just the right crumb for planting into. What was the size of the plot that you first tried the perennial living mulch on? The grant called for one acre. In Andrew's case, it ended up being a 10-acre field that I had set aside because the size of the equipment really was not not, uh, suitable for a a one-acre situation. Yeah, it's tough to get a 12-row or 16-row gladiator down a one acre and do headlands and all that goody. Um, but yeah, that that was the size of the plot. And uh, actually what we're doing now with the Land Institute, it's only one acre. The difference is it's right next to our shop. Uh, so it's close to the equipment. So if I have to finagle it a little bit, I've, I've got a little bit more leeway and margin in my time to do it. Charles is a good guy, but his farm was a little bit up the road <laughs> to do that on the, on the bigger equipment. Gotcha. Uh, that was another question I wanted to ask. What type of strip till bar were you using and how was it set up? Sure. We have a gladiator that we had borrowed from a local retailer uh, because my bar, uh, I didn't think was heavy enough at the time. I've since upgraded. Uh, but at the time, it was a gladiator, 16 row. It had knife shanks on it. Uh, with the chain rolling baskets on the back, uh, leading Coulter on the front. Wondering what the seeding rate was for the clover. The current clover was at uh, 10 pounds to the acre, and the same uh, for the white clover. I would like to have seeded the white clover a little bit heavier, but it turned out okay. So were you were doing the, the two at the same time at those rates? In the second year, yes. In the second year, okay. First year, second year, yep. The first okay. year, it was just the Cura Clover. Sure. Was it a 50-50 mix of the Cura Clover and the White Clover in the second year? Uh, yes, it was. The, the total was about 20 pounds to the acre, 10, 10 of each. It was probably a little bit heavy, but uh, not being that familiar with how the cur and white clover would, would respond. I thought it'd be better to just plant them both at the recommended rate. The results were mixed because not being able to use herbicides as one of the parameters, we tried some other, some other methods. We tried um, mowing uh, both before and during the corn production and we tried uh, using a roller crimper in between the rows to control the the cura clover one of the one of the factors that we had not looked at or had were unaware of was the fact that a green cover will reflect light up into the corn canopy and early on that change in the infrared uh, can alter the development of the corn. So even though it looks good and is healthy, the early competition through the light interception at the 
ground level can set back the corn. And that was one of the drawbacks that we encountered on that. Another one was uh, controlling the weeds in the row because the strip tiller is, uh, even though it tills a narrow strip, it opens up the soil to allow for small seeded weeds like uh, water hemp or in our case, we had a, a flush of mayor's tail, uh, which has tiny seeds and can spread really quickly. And um, so all in all, it was a learning experience. And, but the strip tilling was a, a very important part of it. After a year or two, when your mixture of clovers was able to get established better, um, what, what did you see happen throughout the season and how did it impact the corn yield at the end of the year? We got good emergence. There was a little bit of difficulty in keeping the uh, planter centered in the strip. Uh, I don't know if other farmers have run into that problem, but because his um, GPS and RTK was not aligned with the strip tiller, it planted a little bit off center. And so that was a factor. Uh, the other factor is, as I said, the weeds could still come up in the row. The, the solid cover of the cura clover and white clover did an excellent job of controlling weeds between the rows. But uh, because we didn't use any herbicides, uh, the weeds would come up in the row. And consequently, the combination of the cura clover uh, light interception uh, interference and the weeds really suppressed the both the sweet corn and the white corn that he had uh, chosen for his simultaneous seeding. So the bottom line is he, we didn't get the results that we were looking for, but we learned an awful lot. What are the learnings that you discovered that you think could apply to other strip-till systems? Well, first of all, um, I tried an organic system and I think we could have been much more successful if we had um, sprayed the strips, uh, if we had been able to spray the strips after planting or just over the entire area. And because it was white clover, we were not able to suppress the legume like if it had been uh, cura clover. So we wouldn't have been able to use uh, herbicides anyway, but uh, the uh, RTK guidance is, is another critical factor that you really need to consider. I think that for this type of a system to work, uh, for a perennial living mulch, you're going to need strip till. I do not see how else you can do it without the RTK, that real-time kinematics where you have sub-inch accuracy because you're going to need to put that plant exactly where the fertilizer is and you're going to want to have a nice, effective, thick berm or not even not a berm so much as 
a nice effective row that's been covered with heavy biomass to keep the weeds out. And that's really what we were striving to go for. Uh, from a technical standpoint, the experiment would have worked very differently. And, um, you know, there's hope for us to try something like this in the future. And we'll, I'll step into that with uh, something we're doing with the Land Institute. But what I learned was you need to let that biomass get tall. You need to chop it down. We used a flail chopper, which did a great job, but we did it too early. We didn't let it get tall enough. And then use your strip till bar to create the strips to plant into. I'm confident that had we done that with very tall biomass, like above my waist, and then if I would have strip tilled or strip tilled before and after, that way the berms were really nice and defined, um, I, I'm confident we would have had a very successful crop. So in terms of a technical study, what excites me about this is this is not reinventing the wheel so much as reinventing the process. I mean, we have perennials. We don't have perennials that have been bred for intercropping necessarily, but we do have perennials that are decumbent. Like Charles talked about the cura clover that's rhizomatous, that forms a thick mat. Um, you know, we have some of these. Now, how do we integrate that into a system that can pay for itself? Well, you know, the system starts paying for itself pretty well if you take out the cost of herbicides. And if you add organic matter, which improves water infiltration and water holding capacity, you know, you start doing these things now, you know, the resiliency that you add to the soil pays for itself rather than, and that gets farmers on board doing the right thing, so to speak rather than just saying, well, that's interesting, but it's not something I'm ever gonna do. You know, We don't want this just to be a university uh, idea that doesn't translate onto a wider following. And certainly I want this to work on my farm and you know, work for others. Water infiltrated anywhere from eight seconds up to two minutes. And so what that means is that if you get a heavy rain, uh, an intense rain, the infiltration will be much perennial ground cover system. The other benefit is the uh, microbial benefit from the soil. Uh, also, uh, we measured the temperature at the ground level in our neighbor's fields and in mine, and the temperature was dramatic. In mine, the soil temperature uh, was about 76 degrees and in the neighbor's field uh, at the surface it was 93 degrees and anything over 90 degrees will start to the plant will start to shut down so that was another indirect benefit of the perennial ground cover Before we continue this conversation, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. Dawn is bringing today's innovative farmers a new strip-till product from the regenerative ag-focused underground agriculture brand. The Pluribus Light is priced like a strip freshener, but it offers the features and performance to be used in the fall or spring as a primary strip-tiller or strip freshener. It's the perfect complement to a cover crop system that just needs a little blacker strip. Check out the Pluribus Light at dawnequipment.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. It's pretty incredible that 
you're getting down from as much as 20 minutes to infiltrate the water down into the soil to eight seconds infiltrating. It's such a huge difference and one that really could save a lot of water from running off. That is what really fascinated me about working with cover crops is not so much the benefit to the crop itself, although there are some long-term research results that show that continued use of cover crops with or without uh, strip tilling has uh, benefits to the to the corn production and to any kind of crop production because you're getting a buildup, you're getting a regenerative effect there uh, from the conservation of the resources, the increase in organic matter, the water infiltration rate, which nowadays, given the changes to our climate, are becoming increasingly important because if we're getting a sudden downpour, we want that to go into the ground instead of running off. I can tell you from experience that I drive past fields just a mile or so from me, and I can see the runoff, the sheet erosion coming off of their slopes, where I know for sure that mine doesn't have any erosion anymore after having used cover crops in conjunction with this strip till uh, method for the last two years. Can you walk me through the timeline of when you were making strips, uh, when you were planting, when you cut the clover and all of those kinds of things? From my standpoint, the whole process started two years before when I started conditioning the soil with uh, cover crops. I had two years where I did nothing but uh, plant cover crops. The first year was um, uh, I had winter killed annuals and then I planted summer annuals and then I planted the, the cura clover. And this was because not only to suppress the weeds, but because my soil was, was so um, depleted nutritionally and organically that I felt that in order for this to work properly, I needed to build up the organic matter. And so I think other farmers who want to try this will have to also take that into consideration. And you'd have much better results if you do give the land a rest. We have gone so much to continuous row cropping uh, that uh, we've really lost some of the benefits of uh, a more diversified rotational cropping system. Yeah, so Charles was laying the foundation through a, a fallow, if you will. That's a lot easier for folks to stomach if they are livestock folks, because a, a rest would include, in my opinion, grazing, you know, and that adds some biological diversity and, and activity that I personally can't do because I, the livestock left our farm in the 1970s due to health problems from my dad and grandfather. So I don't have, I don't have four-legged uh, workers on my farm to help out. But I think to Charles's point, you, it would start by preparing the system. So, you know, for me, that would mean, 
okay, if I know what I'm going to do a year or two in advance, if I have a row cropping system, do I throw a different crop? Here it's tough because our markets are corn and beans for the most part. Wheat is much less of a player here in Western Illinois, but that would be ideal. Switch to wheat, which would be very different. And then you've got, you know, you harvest in the summer and now you, it's not a full fallow, but you can get a really good establishment when you get started. Other places where your listeners might be, they add, add a different crop that allows you to get in early incorporate livestock, you know, that's a way to do it. Now, in terms of the actual the steps we took, we did everything in the spring. And I think that that could work. There wasn't a lot of aggressive growth in what Charles had. It looked really nice and it did well, but I thought it was going to get away from me. And again, this, you know, one of the lessons I was still learning when I was attempting to do organic on my own farm I wasn't patient. You're too used to the conventional agriculture where you're like, well, there's five or six different options. So if it doesn't work, you can try something else. Well, that doesn't necessarily work in a system like this. You've got to be patient. And so we took the flail chopper and we went out um, thinking, okay, I'm going to plant, you know, April 20th. I better be flail chopping now. Well, that was foolish. I should have waited to flail chop it until, you know, the end of, uh, April, probably the middle of May, when it would have been a lot taller, would have given me a lot more biomass. What I will say is then we strip tilled and then we came back a few weeks later, I believe, or 10 days, something like that. And that's when we actually planted. If I were to do it again, the ideal circumstance, I think, once it's fully established, you're two or three years in, I would suggest you do your strip till in the fall because then you've laid out where you're going to go. And then you come back in with either a freshener or even the same strip till bar in the spring after you flail chop. That way you've just cleaned it, made it perfect, and then you go. And then I would suggest you plant directly into it. As long as you're not using anhydrous in the spring where you would have root burning, that would be the gold standard. So I would start with building the berms in the fall and then come back once you get your growth, flail chop it, and then come back with a heavy duty freshener or even just strip till again, if you wanted to split the load on uh, dry and anhydrous and the like. But I'm very confident that this can be a successful program. It's just a matter of fine tuning and getting the perennials established like Charles worked towards. And then finally integrating the right labor, you know, you got a flail chop, then you've got to go do the, do the, make the strips and then you got to plant. It sounds like even though you guys didn't get the exact results that you hoped for, you learned how to, hopefully get them the next time? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think the proof of concept is there. Then the next step would be, okay, how do we fine tune it? So the yields work, the species mix, how do we get this fine tuned? Now we're working with the Land Institute. They're based out of Kansas. They it gave us some seed mix that uh, us and a couple other growers around Illinois, it's a native mix and it had, what did it have? Bundle flower, um, uh, gamma gra grass, something like that. Right. I don't even have it all committed to memory, but they were native perennials to Illinois. We seeded about one acre. I did that this spring. The grant allowed us to just say, okay, let's just seed it and do nothing for a year. And now this fall, we'll try strip tilling into it. Then I'll come back this spring, I'll mow it and strip and then plant and see. So I'm basically repeating the exact same process we did. The only thing that's different and what we haven't really talked a lot about is the simultaneous seeding aspect. Mm -hmm. So this grant, the idea was, okay, Charles had something going. I had a separate plot. 
we took a Valmar uh, seating unit, Valmar 6056, mounted it ahead of a plot planner. And the idea was that we're going to broadcast cover crops in front of the, uh, the planter as it goes into those strips. And that, that worked okay. The problem was uh, we found out that the small John Deere 7R series didn't have enough hydraulic uh, cojones <laughs> to, uh, to withstand all of the excess hydraulics that were required. Because this plot planter had hydraulic downforce, it had you know starter fertilizer, it had every single thing and kit in the caboodle, and then the Valmar Steeder needed its own hydraulic supply as well. A bigger tractor would have solved that. We were in the moment. So what we ended up doing is we we did two passes. It was simultaneous in that it was the same day, but it wasn't, you know, we had to drive over it twice, which isn't ideal, but, you know, that it, it didn't affect the results of the study in, in any way. But that simultaneous thing becomes important because Charles established something. I think in conventional systems, I don't a lot of guys aren't going to be able to justify taking a strict fallow period. And even if they do, there's something to be said on, okay, let's just do like a little maintenance seating. You know, the cura clover is a little thin. Let's put a couple pounds out, you know, and we can mix that in with, you know, an organic fertilizer or even a conventional like urea at the same time. So that simultaneous seating was an interesting thought and I think has some merit. I also wonder though, if, um, just timing your planting like if you add wheat into the rotation you can get things established in summer if that might be effective too so we tested the simultaneous nature of that the jury's out on that but i think it's uh worthy of additional research from someone what's really interesting um to me was after the sear final report was uh, published uh, it went online, and I got uh, contacted by a researcher from the Land Institute who is partnering with other researchers in the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, and Illinois on perennial ground cover systems. And uh, as Andrew mentioned, as a result of that communication, we have been able to uh, kind of uh, latch on to the next step in perennial ground cover research. And uh, they got sizable grants, uh, much larger than my small grant, in order to be able to do this in farm scale on, uh, on all the Midwestern states who are participating. And that's really exciting because when you can take some dedicated professional researchers uh, working together to solve some of these problems using uh, strip tilling in combination with different perennial ground covers, uh, we think we can advance this uh, system much more quickly. Yeah, but I would emphasize strip till really is the key because if you're gonna have a perennial system, you need to have the technology to put that seed exactly where you don't want the perennials to be and vice versa. Mm -hmm. You need to have that precision. And I would argue that might be a holdup for certain folks, like typically your organic folks that might be more interested in some of these systems, 
typically are smaller acreage and may not necessarily have RTK. So that's kind of a, a little bit of a negative side. The plus side is that also means that, okay, now you're, you're talking the language of some of these mid-sized operations that are going to be more interested that will widely adopt it um, and, and can do, frankly, quite a bit of good. Uh, I, for one, on our farm, I, I mentioned the phrase earlier, Michaela, about agronomic hedging. You know, I don't think that this would be a fit on we've got some fields that are 30 miles away. Um, I, I don't think that's a fit there because I, I, want to, I want it to be close so I can spend my time focusing and managing and giving that acre the, the tender loving care, the TLC that it deserves to do this right. So, you know, it's taken my family five generations, but we have you know, 900 acres that touches in two sections or three sections. That's where I would do this um, because I could be out in it every day. I can be watching, I can micromanage it. And, but then that's not to say that the principles won't transfer if not the whole system. So last year was the first year we did cover crops on a wide scale, about third, a third of our acreage, because the Valmar cedar that I use for part of my SARE grant, I repurposed it. My brother-in-law is an amazing welder, and we were able to weld certain brackets, and we put it atop um, a vertical tillage tool. Well, we put down cereal rye and some radishes, and I'll be dang if my beans don't look phenomenal. So we're figuring out how to take, now that's not a perennial mulch, but the principle is the same. We're adding diversity and I'm trying to figure out a way that, okay, if I can make this work on these annuals, now some of these principles are gonna start translating back and forth. I mean, I'm, I'm not so naive to assume that an annual is the same as a perennial. I, I know that's very different, but I'm moving in the right direction and I'm excited about that. And the other big thing I point out for your listeners is, how do you do some of this stuff? Because you, you need to be profitable today, but you need to have an eye towards the future. So how do you balance that? Because, you know, I tried doing organic and that was kind of a flop. It was just very frustrating as I kind of alluded to. And I finally said, you know, I just, we don't have the time or the manpower to do that the, the right way yet. So we let it go. For me, looking at this perennial uh, system, simultaneous seeding and the like, I, my goal from the practicality, how do we scale this into an actual system? How do we make it almost revenue neutral, right? I mean, you're going to have some added costs. Charles talked about how the Keurig clover is expensive seed. You know, that, that's a fixed cost. Um, but, you know, if you do this right, you can cut back almost entirely on your herbicide program or use half as much where you're just stunting that perennial um, for a short time and then it grows back. So, I mean, there's a cost savings there. Um, obviously, long-term, you build that organic matter and now you're somewhat drought resilient uh, as a result. So how do you make that somewhat drought, uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, revenue neutral? What we're doing on the annual cover crop side, for instance, we have experiments this year where we pulled the residual herbicide out of our program at the beginning. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to take it out completely, but we basically said the money we're spending on cover crop seed is about the same cost as Zidua Pro. You know, let's pull the Zidua Pro out and just kill the cover crop that's out there and let's see if this works. So we've, we're running some tests on that this summer and I'm excited about it because 
at worst, it's revenue neutral. At best, I've added biodiversity. I have added, you know, new life to my soils, erosion control. And that's the type of attitude I'm trying to take. And that's the other perspective I want to bring to the table on this. How do we make it practical for guys to try it and move forward? I think you have two interesting perspectives, Andrew, where you're talking about this system where everything needs to be micromanaged, but at the same time, you're thinking so big picture about what this is going to do for your whole system in years to come and beyond. It's kind of a a weird dichotomy, isn't it? You know, you want it, you need to micromanage a little bit, but you also need to be thinking big picture. And I like the word resiliency a lot better than sustainability. You know, it's sort of like, you know, everybody in agriculture knows what pH stands for. You know, that's the acidity or the basicity of your soil, right? Well, it's it's a buffered system. And, and that's what we are really trying to create. So that's where you need to micromanage it. So in our example, we should have waited until that cover crop got X amount of inches tall, probably about waist high before we flail chop. Now, that where the micromanaging comes in as well, it's, it's a little taller than that or it's a little shorter, that's fine versus me going out there when it's only 10 inches and it's not near, nearly close. So there's some micromanaging, but you get to a point where that, the resiliency of the system allows you to make decisions around it, okay? And uh, you, you know, putting these, the, those two perspectives in place, to me, the big picture is how are we going to get another guy and another tractor to do this job? Because really the way I would envision it would be you've got a guy running the flail chopper and then you've got a guy running the strip till bar and then immediately somebody else jumps into a planter. For some farms that's doable because you might have somebody running a sprayer who's all, and then a guy running a planter and a guy running a seed tender. You, some farms might be able to make that adopt that change really quickly. Us, you know, my brother-in-law and I, we're both in our mid-30s. We don't have any hired help and we run 1,800 acres. So that's not feasible for us. So for us, it is truly micromanaging because there's not enough human capital or human labor to go around. Uh, But that's the fun and frustration of farming. There's no cookie cutter way to do it, right? And I'm going to say this, and I think it's a testament to what Charles did, letting it fallow, but also that bar, certainly the time of year. It was some of the most beautiful soil that I've ever seen that I tilled into, uh, that, I, that, that that strip till bar was bringing up when I went through that. And that's another reason, and that's probably what I should have led with when I sat down to talk to you guys. That's one thing that gives me hope for a system like this. I mean, if I'm honest, we farm in one of the easiest places in the world. We've got really nice soils. Our definition of a bad soil, I mean, Charles said he's, his is highly eroded and it lost organic matter. You know, the worst on his farm is still better than a lot of folks on the fringe areas of the Midwest. Like we farm in a very good spot. So I'll get that off the table. We're the bad guys. We know it. We've got easy soils. But all that said, that was, I, so I've grown up around these soils and obviously Charles had too. Those were still the best soils I had ever seen. Just the the blocky, crumbly, beautiful, just like black cottage cheese. It just was so beautiful. It felt good. It smelled good. It was everything you wanted when I strip tilled into that after we flail chopped. Yeah. So I think that is, that anecdotally gives me a lot of hope and a lot of optimism to continue trying this. And that gladiator did a great job. 
I'm not familiar enough with strip tilling to be able to say uh, to other farmers if their strips will turn out with as nice a crumb and with as nice a structure as ours did. But uh, I feel confident that uh, that was so nice that you could have planted immediately into that and have gotten a good uh, emergence within a few days. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, I've done research and uh, I used to have an ag systems bar. That was my first strip till bar. Uh, bought it from someone who was upgrading to a gladiator. And, you know, the gladiator that we borrowed, it was excellent. But since that time, I have upgraded, um, found one at auction. And I now have a land lover type bar, which is basically, in my opinion, and, you know, I'm ra- maybe I'm rationalizing because I'm biased because it's mine, but I think it's a heavier version of a gladiator. The the front leading row cleaners are larger. It's just heavier frame, but it looks very similar in nature. And I've got a coulter in front and I've got a huge, a big knife going down. One thing that's interesting among strip tillers is how they are set up. Um, if you've got a knife shank or a coulter shank, you know, are you doing strip freshening? Are you not? We do not strip freshen. I, I kind of think it's a waste of time for us and our soils. I think for other folks, if they were genuinely worried about you know, things turning into a crust, or if they wanted to make another pass to put a different fertilizer or a micronutrient on, it might make sense. In this system, I think it would. Um, so, I mean, I, if I had the labor and the equipment, it might make sense for me to strip till in the fall into that perennial mulch and then come back with a freshener after I flail chop it down. Um, but yeah, that, that's a little bit about the, the system that we use. The Gladiator did well. Uh, I've done research on Soil Warrior. I think they've got a fascinating design where, you know, my understanding is they uh, they have a increased pressure on their blower. So they are basically forcing all of the fertilizer into the whole soil profile because it's such high pressure. Uh, I think that's an interesting design. You know, Orthman makes a really heavy bar. Ultimately, I think all of them can do the job. It's just a matter of how easy one is to set up and how heavily built they are. But the proof was in the results and you know, we've got the pictures. Those were amazing berms that we were building that spring going through Charles's field. We covered a lot. Is there anything else that either of you wanted to add that I haven't asked you? I would like to tell the farmer uh, listeners uh, to if they want to find out a real success uh, story, to go to the Land Institute and look at their pictures because they have some beautiful uh, results of their uh, perennial ground cover systems with strip tilling, and um, that uh, even even in spite of some of our drawbacks and uh, inconsistencies. They have been doing it much longer, and they know what they're doing. So I would recommend them. That's good advice. And Andrew, any last thoughts from you? There's a lot of potential here where you can find quite a bit of common ground. You know, there is a lot of opportunity where an organic mindset can marry up with a conventional mindset, can marry up with a regenerative and I think a perennial living mulch really can be a valuable tool in any one of those toolboxes. And I think strip tillage is going to be an important thing going forward. It's important on our farm, reducing costs, improving agronomy and biodiversity. 
I would challenge any farmer to just keep an open mind for ideas like this. Thanks to Andrew Bowman and Charles Martin for joining me for today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about their trials and ask them questions for yourself, they're speaking at the 2022 National Strip Tillage Conference in Iowa City, Iowa, July 28th through 29th. Head to striptillconference.com to register for two days of learning from cutting edge strip tillers and researchers like Andrew and Charles. If you're looking for more podcasts about strip till, visit striptillfarmer.com slash podcasts or check out our episode library wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, many thanks to the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment for helping to make this strip till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Faulkner. Thanks for listening.